Hello and welcome to the Seeking Health Podcast. I am Josiah. I'm normally joined by my wife, Anne Jiska, and with her, we, we were missionaries for seven years until we stepped back in 2019 to seek health and re-examine our beliefs. Right now, I'm a Christian, but not an evangelical, and my wife is an agnostic and also very much not an evangelical, and we are deconstructing and reconstructing together, really just trying to find a way forward through the mess that we have inherited. Listen to some of our key episodes, such as Deconstructing Together, Domestic Abuse, I'm a Survivor, The Cult of ATI Part 1 and 2, and Dehumanized by Purity Culture. And today I am honored and very excited to have Shane Claiborne uh, joining me today. And Shane is a prominent speaker, activist, and best-selling author. He worked with Mother Teresa in Calcutta and founded The Simple Way in Philadelphia. He heads up Red Letter Christians, a movement of folks who are committed to living as if Jesus meant the things he said. Shane is a champion for grace, which has led him to jail advocating for the homeless and to places like Iraq and Afghanistan to stand against war. Now grace fuels his passion to end the death penalty and help stop gun violence. Good to be with you, man. Yeah, it's good to be with you too. Um, we were just mentioning before we hit record um, you're in the States. How have you been experiencing what's been going on? Like, how, how are you doing personally? Like personally, I, it hit me hard. I, I had a hard time with it, even though it's not my country. How are you doing right now? <laughs> well, I, I am doing pretty well. You know, we, we, we've got all got folks that we know that have died of the coronavirus and oh man yeah uh, you know but we've and we've also got you know folks that we we know that have been infected by the virus of racism you know and so yes and I'm, I'm down south right now where i grew up i grew up in tennessee you know and, and growing up we had the confederate flag on it was on our lunchroom trays josiah it was on, wow. on our the know, confederate flag on was on your lunchroom yeah, oh. uh, like on our trays that you eat on, and then it was on our walls, on murals, and football uniforms. It was everywhere. So that I mean, funk of uh, uh, you know our history of racism is still evident. I mean, just driving around yesterday, we still see Confederate flags, you know, down here. And I mean, up north too, but I mean, really prominently down here. And so I, you know, I, I think the last four years under Donald Trump have been. Um, revealing you know i've I've said often that 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 trump didn't change america he revealed america and now i think the next four years uh you know even right now is a time of reckoning we've got to we've got to wrestle with that uh mirror that's been held up to our country you know and i think it's very evident who donald trump is at this point the question is who we are as a country and who we want to be yeah yeah and i appreciate that saying that he didn't uh whatever you said he didn't corrupt christianity but he revealed it i'm having a a discussion right now on facebook kind of ongoing slow moving discussion with a really respectful person but he's saying look that's not true christianity that i mean that was a few wackos that that stormed the capital but that wasn't true christianity and i'm trying to help him understand well sure it's not true christianity but it's representative christianity um would you resonate with that like how do you respond when people say well that's just if that's just the exception. We don't need to worry about that. Well, uh, so I think that there are, there's certainly a continuum of Trump supporters, but I mean, we're talking millions and millions of people that are still defending Donald Trump, including some of the most prominent evangelical voices in the U S like Franklin Graham, right? Um, Mm -hmm. These are folks that are 
um, not all QAnon, you know, like wild way out wacko conspiracy theorists, but they're rooted in one version of historic kind of evangelical Christianity. But, I, you know, I, I, I think it's really important to note that this is not new, right? Like yeah. uh, Frederick Douglass, uh, I put, we put his words in our book, Jesus for President, because and we wrote that, you know, over a decade ago, but his words are so relevant. Um, uh, he said, between the Christianity of this land, and he's talking about, you know, the United States, the Christianity of this land, the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference, <laughs> you know, and he said so wide that, you know, to receive one as good, uh, pure and holy, it's a necessity to call the other bad, corrupt and wicked. And he said, I love the Christianity of Christ. I therefore, um, you know, hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Like, that's Frederick Douglass, right? So I, I think we've got to realize that there is a version of American nationalism, of white supremacy, that has camouflaged itself as Christianity. But that's why I always say the word Christian means Christ-like. And if it doesn't sound like Jesus, if it doesn't look like Jesus, then let's not call it Christianity. And I, I think that's certainly, we have competing narratives yes. uh, in America of what Christianity is, really is. And that is so on point for the message and the direction of this podcast is waking up one morning and realizing, hey, the, the Christianity that we've been part of and been promoting as missionaries and been defending as an apologist this really is upholding a very um, a very ungodly narrative of yeah. patriarchy and racism and imperialism and a whole lot of other things. And the more that we see, the less we can unsee it. How 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 broad is the gap between the Jesus of scriptures and the Jesus of we could say white American evangelicalism? And each one of those words is significant. Um, white because it's not the same for people of color. Uh, they have a different experience of, of Christianity. American because the epicenter is in the States with people like Franklin and Graham and John Piper and, you know, some of the major universities like Liberty University with Jerry Falwell Jr. and um, James Dobson, you know, all those people that are visible and invisible that have created this system. And evangelical because it has its roots in the, the 20th century in America. Um, and, and it's very dominant. Like this is the only Christianity I know, but yeah. the question that I would like to pursue with you is, is there an alternative to white American evangelicalism? And I'm wondering if, if we could move, if we could back up a little bit. And, uh, I want to ask you, when was it that you mentioned that there were Confederate flags, you grew up in the South, um, you kind of grew up even more in the epicenter of this than I did. When was it that um, white American evangelicalism began to lose its luster for you and you began to look elsewhere uh, for pursuing Jesus? Yeah, so I, I began seeing some of those contradictions uh, early on that I wasn't just being uh, formed and shaped by Jesus and by the gospel, but I was also being formed and shaped by the culture wars, you know, yes. and by the, re the Republican Party. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I uh, in my high school days, I led the See You at the Flagpole uh, campaigns, which we had all over the country where, you know, 
bring prayer back in public schools. And, you know, it was very much about um, standing in the way of the secularization of our society, right. you know, all this stuff. So it was, but, you know, what I really began to see is that when it came to some of these political issues like abortion, I was very passionately against abortion. Um, and I called myself pro-life, but I really only thought of that one issue, you know, and that's where I began to see that uh, the irony in, in the United States is you can say you're pro-life and still be pro-guns, pro-death penalty, mm -hmm. pro-war, <laughs> you know, like, like on the, <laughs> yeah, not pro-life on everything other than abortion. And so it was almost like life before birth mattered than, more than life after birth. And, yes. you know, so I started seeing some of that. And I went to Philadelphia to go to college because I wanted to lean in to how big the world is, right? And how, um, in some ways, how small my spiritual landscape was. Uh, and so it was when I was in college that I studied, uh, I like how Karl Barth said, we need to read the Bible in one hand, but we need to read the newspaper in the other, right? Mm -hmm. So that our faith doesn't just become a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. So I studied sociology and I studied the Bible. And that's where a lot of things really came to life for me because I began to see my faith, not just as an escape from this world, but as um, something that fuels uh, our vision for transforming the world, right? From what it is to what God wants it to be. As Jesus said, you know, the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So it's not just about going up when we die, but bringing God's reign, God's dream uh, on earth while we live. And that kind of better theology was helpful. But one of the things that you said that's so important, um, Josiah, was that um, I also began to see that even though white evangelicalism is uh, in some ways, the, the loudest or the most prominent uh, version of Christianity in the U.S., it's not always the most beautiful and that there's all yeah. kinds of other things that are happening outside of that. And just to make that crystal clear that what we're talking about is a version, it's not, it's not just white evangelicals, but also white Catholics that supported mm. Donald Trump um, in the numbers of not just some, but like 80%, right? Mm. Um, and that's a lot, you know, eight out of 10, the same people that led me to Jesus led us to Donald Trump. And so yeah. you got to kind of begin to reckon with that. But what's so important is that as you look outside the uh, landscape of white evangelicalism, the opposite is true of people of color. 80% uh, mm. of, of non-white Christians uh, did not support Donald Trump, right? And they had issues that mattered beyond abortion. In fact, abortion was, it, it, was, it only registered as the top issue for white evangelicals. All other groups were concerned about all kinds of other spiritual issues, um, ethical issues, right? Um, they were concerned yeah. about healthcare, concerned about the environment, concerned about poverty. So, you know, and, and racial justice. So that, that becomes so important. So where I find a lot of energy and life and, and honestly better theology is by leaning in to those historic black churches, to the, you know, even uh, the, the, the Latino Christians, Native American Christians and theologians. So as you look at the group that I'm a part of now, Red Letter Christians, um, we, we have 
a really beautiful diversity of voices uh, within. And part of what we believe is, as my friend Reverend Barber says, we change the narrative by changing the narrators, right? Mm -hmm. So we're trying to amplify the voices of a, a more robust, beautiful, healthy spirituality. Can you, un like, where do I plug into that? Because I'm trying to change the channel and I'm having a hard time. Um, like, I don't know what to search for because like all that I've listened to is like white evangelical guys in their, you know, baby boomer generation. I literally don't know where to look. And I've been trying to ask people and they're like, well, Ravi Zacharias and um, Tony Evans. There you go. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and so yeah, it, where can I plug into other voices? Well, the good news is that uh, so much of that is shifting right now that, I mean, I would say for starters, folks can go to redletterchristians.org and we've got something we call the Leaders Network um, where there's uh, probably a hundred different uh, preachers, writers, speakers that are on there. Um, and some of them folks might know and others you may not, but they're incredible voices that uh, mm. really have a Christ-centered Christianity. And that's what yeah. we really begin to see is that when we take our eyes off of Jesus, we end up talking a lot about things Jesus didn't talk a lot about. And we don't end up talking uh, about the things that Jesus talked a whole lot about. So yeah. centering Jesus at the heart of our theology um, and, and, and our practice, you know, we want to, um, when, when Jesus says in Matthew 25, that we're going to be judged by how we welcome the immigrant, the foreigner, the stranger, how we care for the sick, how we, you know, share food with the hungry. I mean, that, this is a big deal. And so if our Christianity isn't about welcoming the stranger and caring for the poor and, you know, the sick, then let's not call it Christianity because it doesn't, it doesn't look like, um, the things that Jesus proclaimed in the Sermon on the Mount and in, in his teaching in the Gospels. Yeah. I wonder if we could unpack a little bit more about white American evangelicalism, because you mentioned abortion. Do you think that um, white American evangelicals hide certain issues behind other issues? Do you know what I mean by that? Like, for example, abortion... And there's a historical, you know, there's people that have looked at this historically to see how this became the focal point of the GOP. But whenever you, you talk about an ethical issue like immigration, like, um, you know, healthcare or something like that, evangelicals are conditioned to say, yes, but what about abortion? Yeah. Do you think that there are issues like that, that, um, that, that become hot, these hot button issues, and that's all that we can see, but behind them are or perhaps they are obscuring other issues that are very important. Do you right, right. So, I mean, you know, the old saying that we, we major into minors and minor into majors sort of thing, I think is, is something that, I mean, you have to name the fact that it's not that abortion does not matter, mm -hmm. um, but it's that it is very, it's very unclear in the scripture, right? Like Jesus doesn't mention it and it certainly existed, right? Now, Jesus doesn't mention nuclear bombs either, but I think we need to be talking about that. I think that's a big spiritual issue, right? But abortion did exist at the time. We don't have a lot of uh, direct scripture that speaks to the issue of abortion. Um, so, you know, this thing that now is some, for some Christians, it's the only issue that they can yeah. talk about. We're trying to have a better 
uh, I, I think, a movement of seeing these different intersections of justice, right? So I like the language that of pro-life. I like to say I'm pro-life from womb to tomb, right? Um, that it, pro-life to me does not just mean pro-birth or anti-abortion. Um, yeah. So we hosted a town hall on this. My friend Lisa Sharon Harper and I did last week on the anniversary of Roe versus Wade. We've had a couple of conversations because there's a lot of things that people don't, myself included, don't know. And that is that since Roe versus Wade, over the last 40 years, um, the number of abortions has steadily dropped. Um, and this is through Republican and Democratic uh, presidents, right? Um, and the number one cause of uh, listed or the reason for having an abortion is economic, right? It's, it's yeah. the financial um, viability of being able to raise a child. And so if we really care about reducing abortions, then things like health care and child care should be, you know, way up there on our, our list, you know? So, but that's where the issue has become more of a culture war, you know? Um, and when you have people that are, um, and, and on some of these calls, we've had people that were at the forefront of the anti-abortion movement in the 1980s, you know, that were putting the, uh, picketing the, the Planned Parenthood clinics and putting the, you know, the, the, the little pictures of the embryo or the fetus, uh, you know, on signs. And so, you know, but when you say, you know, how did this become uh, the, the major issue? One of the other people that we had on our first conversation on abortion was Randall Balmer, who shows how abortion did become um, this sort of um, smokescreen of uh, like th this issue that that was the most prominent issue for evangelicals because they couldn't agree on a lot of other things, <laughs> you know, like yeah. nuclear weapons. And But one of the things is that there was this history of race. And that's so important that a lot of this had to do with schools that still wanted to be segregated, uh, white evangelical schools that didn't want interracial dating. Um, and they had to create a common platform. I mean, no one wants that to be your issue, right? right. <laughs> we, we, like, so there had to be some broader uh, kind of foundation for that. And Randall Balmer's historic work on that shows you know, exactly how abortion uh, evolved to be the number one issue. Um, yeah, because you think of about immigration. I mean, this is something that is so consistent in scripture, right? Yes. That um, we should welcome the foreigner as if they were our own flesh and blood. That's what, you know, the Hebrew scripture says. Jesus says, you know, when you welcome the stranger, you welcome me. Uh, the New Testament says when we uh, bring it, you know, show hospitality, we might be entertaining angels unawares, right? So this is holy work. And this shouldn't be a Republican thing or a Democrat thing. This should be a Jesus thing, right? And so under yeah. like, um, under Republican presidents, there are times where we've welcomed the most uh, asylum seekers and immigrants. Um, and yet under the Trump administration, this is one of the most explicitly anti-Christian policies that he he had, you know, separating children from their parents, detention centers with the children in cages, you know, folks that were the stay in Mexico policy, pushing people over the bar, you know, over and over. Like this is this is not anything a Christian can defend. Right. Uh, and yet we continue to try to do so. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked about that on the, on the podcast before as well, that actually just criminalizing abortion is one of the worst things you can do to spike abortion rates or trying to criminalize it. It, it doesn't, because often you're reducing the, um, 
the actual financial aid. Um, and, uh, and what you were saying about being whole life, uh, being pro-life, meaning caring about the whole life and caring about the whole person, you know, you do see that the widow, the orphan, the alien, the unjustly accused, these are priorities for Jesus. Um, James 127, pure religion and undefiled in the sight of God is this, to visit the widows and orphans in their distress and to keep yourself unstained from the world. You know, evangelicals say they're pretty good at keeping themselves unstained from the world, although, you know, recent scandals have perhaps uh, shown the contrary. But as far as wid visiting widows and orphans in their distress, I don't know that we're leading the charge in that. In fact, if you make that your priority, people might consider you to be a liberal or um, perhaps a Marxist these days. Um, and I have heard as well that what you said, that there was this tension to, um, as society was moving forward with desegregation, there was this tension in, I think, the 60s and 70s to say, no, we want, we don't want our kids studying next to, you know, a person of color. So we're going to have separate Christian schools. And that is when you saw the homeschooling movement and you saw the private school movement and you saw the Bible Institute movement, which I'd really be interested. This is a question that you can't answer, but something I've wondered is because I was raised in a Christian school and I went to a Bible Institute. And I'm just curious, although I'm up in Canada how much of the trickle-down effect of some of some of those sentiments actually affected my life? Um, well, you know, and you, you, as you get into the weeds of this a little bit, Josiah, you can see how people, some folks are really stuck. Like Billy Graham, for instance, um, was, was really caught in the middle of these culture wars, right? And he, um, you know, navigated that. He, he didn't want his revivals to be segregated. You know, he, he yeah. and so he was really leaned into folks like John Perkins, who was the son of a sharecropper that was kind of opening his eyes to some of this. But um, yeah, I, but so like, you know, you fast forward to now, and I, I think what's so important is that white evangelicals overwhelming support of Donald Trump says more about their whiteness yeah. than I think their real faith, that it's that history of racism that, is, is very much part of what we're, we're seeing in our country, right? That it is no coincidence that this comes, uh, this kind of rise in overt white supremacy, like what happened at the Capitol, comes on the back of the first black president, the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, all of this, the changing demographics of America. So, you know, Donald Trump has, uh, you know, he's an opportunist. He's really, yeah. um, uh, 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 capitalized on that right and so the when people say make america great again you got to step back and sort of say if i listen to that from a as a person of color you know what yeah. a, what era of american history do i want to go back to right and yeah. and so the question i think becomes you know when many people are saying make america great again they're saying make america white again yeah. Because there is this sort of white anxiety and fear and even nostalgia, right, of how things used to be when yeah. we were in charge. You know, you didn't have Muslims in Congress. You didn't have, you know, women and black folks that were leading our country. So th that's not everyone, but that's certainly a huge part of what happened um, at the Capitol that now has created a really awkward place for folks like Franklin Graham, who continues to say things like, well, it could have been Antifa. 
right? The yeah. anti-fascists that, you know, <laughs> we're carrying Confederate flags into the Capitol, right? So, yeah, that's something. You know, that I, yeah. So anyway, yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, just continuing to unpack this narrative that you hear over and over in these kind of key catchphrases, um, bringing our nation back to God or the nation is leaving God. How much do you think in this culture war? Oh, what's going on? I just got a notification from Zoom. Hopefully it won't shut us off. Um, how much do you think that people are concerned truly about the nation leaving God? And how much are they concerned about the nation leaving whiteness behind or leaving? Yeah. So, I mean, this, this is so, you know, intricately bound up that I, I genuinely believe that you can start, you can repeat a narrative enough that you start believing it, right? You start believing a lie. And I think that's what has happened to the president, to, to, you know, the former president, Donald Trump. I mean, even his niece said, if he doesn't, if he doesn't, if he can't make sense of something, he'll just create a narrative and then repeat it enough that it becomes true to him. And I think in some ways that has also happened to parts of Christianity that we, we don't have a theology that is, robust enough and big enough for this. And so for some people, um, if you believe that God put Donald Trump in power, and please, that's what a lot of folks here have said, uh, you know, yeah. Jerry Falwell said that this is, you know, our dream president for Christians. And Franklin Graham literally said that God intervened in the election and helped Donald Trump come to power. So if that's your theology, then now you have a really hard time, right? Making sense of the pieces of this, right? Yeah. Um, so that, that's where I think we, we've got to have better theology, you know, and there's lots of bad theology that has surfaced over the last few years. I, I, I keep saying I will never be able to make sense of a theology that says I don't need to wear a mask because yeah. God will protect me, but I still need a gun. <laughs> you know, just, just, like, that, that just has so many holes in it. Right. Um, yeah. but, you know, I think also like we, we have to believe that God loves us enough to allow us free will. And we use that free will as a country to, to choose Donald Trump in 2016. And we suffer the consequences of that, right? Mm -hmm. And so we made, I think, a better decision, you know, in 2020 to, to vote out Donald Trump. Like God's allowing us free will. We may have other consequences that we're yeah. working with, right? But that, so I, I think some of it is that, um, that that's what has also been revealed is some of this really um, dangerous theology that God is in charge. So this is God's man, right? Donald Trump or whatever. So I, I think, you know, that theology just doesn't hold up. You know, yeah. I've, I've seen that. You've seen that, I'm sure. So yeah. that when, when your only answer to a pandemic is this must be God's punishment for something, you know, when a 10-year-old girl is raped and your only answer is God had this happen for a reason, like that is such toxic theology, right? That we've got We've got, and the good news is, I think we have better theology out there, but we've got to lean in to those other places, like to many of our black and brown and indigenous uh, uh, brothers and sisters to, to listen to how their theology has shaped, you know, how they understand suffering. Because when you have black folks that have lived through so much of what white people have done to them with the Bible in their hand as their theological weapon, Right. And yet they still have uh, a, an understanding 
of a God that is with us in our suffering, a God that liberated the slaves in Egypt, a God that has suffered with those who were lynched because God in Jesus hung from a tree. Like that's our best theology, right? And so we've got to keep coming back to that, I think, in our country. Yeah, and we need to, that's what I'm realizing and I'm just trying to figure out how to do it, but I need to start listening to the oppressed instead of listening to the oppressor because the oppressor has all the money and has all the degrees and has the, the leisure time to study and get into all, you know, write the commentaries and everything. But they are often like the Laodicean church where they have lost their first love. And I need to start listening to the oppressor and it might look a little bit messier and, and he might be working three jobs and trying to pastor three churches. And it might be, you know, not as refined as I like, but he's in touch with, you know, the suffering God in a way that I don't think, um, some or of the she. people yeah or she yeah, yeah thank yeah. you for that um you yeah, know because I, I think i think in some ways like black women have been the conscience of of our country right um, i mean when, when we look at you know who has con consistently uh opposed the rhetoric and the policy policies of the trump administration it has been largely african-american women folks of color mm -hmm. you know women of color and so um you know, we hosted a revival at Red Letter Christians and we had seven African-American women that preached back to back and they proclaimed a better vision for the beloved community. Right. And it was wow. beautiful. So I, I think you're exactly right that we need to, you know, take a little census of the books on our shelves, um, the voices that are shaping our theology and realize that that social location matters, right? It's not that there's not good white theologians out there. There are. I mean, Bruxy Cavey, who you've had on your show, is one of my great friends. You know, I love that brother. Um, there are great voices. But when we look at the kind of cloud of witnesses, we, gotta, um, we, we just need to have a diversity that reflects the kingdom of God. And particularly in this moment, I think lean into those voices of folks who have been marginalized and their social location uh, and, uh, you know, uh, has shaped some of their theology. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's something that we've absolutely learned, you know, with postmodern, you know, understandings, and certainly you can go too far with postmodernism, but what it has shown us is that your perspective matters when you read a text, you know, where you were raised, your background, it matters. And I think it really matters whether you've always had privilege or whether you understand what it means to be actually be a slave, what it, what it means to actually be on the receiving end of uh, unjust decrees. And then you, you just different scriptures come alive, different verses come alive. And it, I think it's a far more accurate perspective because scriptures were um, written from the perspective of the oppressed. I wonder, yeah. did you, I was trying to look it up on my phone and I didn't, um, couldn't find it, but did you see what Matt Walsh texted or uh, tweeted a couple days ago? He said, no, uh, I, didn't. I thought this was really significant. Uh, he said, I'll paraphrase because I couldn't find it, but he said the best thing that you can do now, you know, referring to the fact that they lost the election and he was disappointed is uh, to take your kids out of school, buy a bunch of guns, buy some land and homeschool your kids. This was his response to the new climate, new political climate is, you know, buy some land, get some guns, homeschool your kids. And, you know, that's how you're going to change culture. What, what does that represent for you about, um, be, does that seem typical to you? And what does that represent to you about white evangelical Americanism? 
Well, I, but as I said, I didn't see the recent, uh, uh, you know, things that he's, that Matt, Matt may have said, but I, I, I do think that this idea, um, that we are going to separate ourselves from the, this world, right. Is one of those things that one, I mean, uh, if, if one's going to move out by land and guns, one has to have, uh, money, (laughs) (laughs) and, um, and I'll tell you what, I, I've just been so encouraged by, um, watching like folks that uh, have been in my neighborhood, for instance, um, their perspective on this, um, is, uh, I, I can remember when the, the dial was crashing, you know, like one of those times. And, um, and uh, one of my neighbors said, no matter what happens on Wall Street, we, we're going to make it through this. And he said, uh, our hope is not in Wall Street or in the Dow Jones. Our hope is in Jesus, right? And he said, and besides, my people have been in a recession for a few hundred years, <laughs> right? So that like long perspective of like, look what we've made it through. And God never left us. I mean, the amazing thing about the, that kind of what's been named as white fear, white fragility, white anxiety, it comes because we have held the reins of power and look what we've done with it, right? I mean, yeah. we've done horrific things. And, and so now there's this sense that even talking about equality is a threat, yeah. to, to that, that power. And I think we really have to, to name that, you know, that, that, um, uh, so yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not surprised by that kind of fear and withdrawal, but I, I love that Christian, we have survived some things over the centuries Christians have, <laughs> you know, like, and that's one of the claims that we can say is no matter what, like, no matter how bad this gets, like we've been through some stuff before, right? Mm-hmm. Like our savior was actually executed publicly, hung naked and humiliated by the state in collaboration with the religious elite, right? Like, like, like we hung Jesus on a cross, like, and he rose from the dead. So like, that's our, the centerpiece of our faith, right? Um, so, so that God, you know, absorbs all the pain of the world and triumphs over it through, you know, love, forgiveness, and, and, and an empty tomb. I think that's the gospel that we really have to like get back to, um, that there is a God who suffers with us. You know, as I, remember one of the moms who lost her kids to gun violence. She said, God knows what it feels like to Mm. see your son get killed. Yeah. God knows what it feels like to be the mother of someone on death row and watch their son get executed like God. And so that idea I've got, you know, one of my books here on my desk is that Jesus and the disinherited, you know, this is a book that Mm. they said, Dr. Uh, uh, Howard Thurman's book that they said, Dr. King carried this around in his back pocket. So Mm. we've got to, you know, we've got to um, uh, uh, not just read the Bible, but we've got to read the Bible with those who, have struggled, right? Um, and, and not just in a, in a vacuum. So this idea, you know, that we're going to um, protect our kids by homeschooling all of them, or we're going to 
you know, protect ourselves somehow with the stockpile of guns from the entire U.S. military. You know, I mean, yeah. that, that, that's just, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a really dangerous theology and it's, uh, I think, totally irrational as well. Yeah, I found the quote here. He said, uh, the best thing conservatives can do to reclaim the cultures, have a bunch of kids and homeschool them, get married, have kids, buy guns, buy books, buy land, turn off the TV. This is the way. Um, I think we've probably said enough about that. Um, you mentioned that even discussions about inclusion are threatening to evangelicals right now. And right now, uh, we saw a number of evangelical seminaries and, and um, you know, denominations put out statements against Black Lives Matter, said, hey, this is a Marxist institution, bad things have happened under the banner of Black Lives Matter, so we can't support it in any way. We need to affirm that all lives matter because blah, 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 you know, Genesis 1, 27, 28, you know, everybody's made God's image. And recently, uh, critical race theory has come under attack and, you know, Southern Baptist seminaries have said that, um, that we can't support critical race theory or intersectionality in any of its forms. What, what do you think, um, how can I phrase this? Talk to me about racism and, and what, what do people are talking about a day of reckoning that's happening right now, especially after the inauguration or the, uh, the insurrection January 7th. What do you think we need to come to terms with as evangelicals when it comes to race? So there's a lot to, to unpack there, but I think one of the things that is clear is that, um, part of this reckoning is not just about theology and toxic versions of evangelicalism, but it is also about how we interpret um, and heal the wounds of history, right? Um, 400 years of history has shown us that black lives don't matter, right? I mean, literally the people that wrote our, our founding documents that all men are created equal owned black people as property, right? We were reckoning with that. We're, you know, dread, the Dred Scott case that said black folks don't have any rights that white people have to recognize. So that history um, is there. And that's why I think when, um, uh, w when we talk about the Confederate statues, right, that we have so often remembered our history with this kind of romantic version of history that we put up monuments to the victimizers yeah. rather than the victims, the folks that were on the wrong side of history. I mean, Josiah, in my home state of Tennessee, we still have a statue inside the Capitol of Nathan Bedford Forrest, who was one of the founders of the Ku Klux Klan. I wow. mean, this is a statue still in our capital, right? So this history um, is, is there. And, and, you know, as my friend Brian Stevenson, uh, who's done a wonderful job trying to help us rethink how we remember history. And he says, it, we can't get our future right until we get our history right. Right. That you, you go to Germany and you don't see statues set up to the Nazis. You yeah. see statues set up to the, the, incredible lives that were crushed by them. Right. And we don't remember nine 11 by setting up, you know, 14 statues to the terrorists. We remember the folks who were killed. Right. So I think that history we've got to, we've got to really reckon with that. But what ha has happened with the black lives matter movement is people are naming that right. That until we can 
emphatically say Black Lives Matter. We can't pretend that we really believe that all lives matter, right? Because we've got to specifically name what that history has shown. And, and folks are not saying black lives matter more, you know, or white lives don't matter. They're saying we just need to hear you know, people say in light of that history that our lives matter. I heard a comedian, uh, I think it was Michael Shea that said, uh, if your wife comes up to you and she, she says, um, honey, do you love me? You don't say back, baby, I love everyone. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, we don't just like on Mother's Day, we don't just celebrate all mothers, right? You celebrate your mom. So there's something I think given our past in our country that we need to specifically be able to say Black Lives Matter. And I mean, sure, folks can, you know, they're going to discredit anything by saying these are Marxists or social or whatever, communists, you know, but, but the fact is that that, that name Black Lives Matter that, that being able to say that is an invitation to affirm what 400 years of history uh, has ne ne negated, right? Um, it, it's kind of helping us correct that. And, and racism didn't get worse. It just got exposed, right? It got recorded yeah. on cameras. And now you watch George Floyd's life just crushed out of him. And, um, and you start to say, you know, how many other... George Floyd's are there that someone didn't have a camera right there, you know, and I think that's what's happening in our country. And, you know, with, with indigenous lives, it's the same, you know, yeah. I mean, this is our reckoning with Christopher Columbus day as a holiday, right? Um, yeah. All of those things are a part of that. So how we remember history, but for Christians, I think we, re we realize that sin is personal, yeah. but we've also got to recognize that sin impacts our institutions. These are human formed institutions, right? Like sin. So that's where the systemic racism and the, uh, you know, critical race theory, these things have become important because they help us see that it doesn't have to be either or, right? Yeah. God is healing my heart of racism, of prejudice, of, of all of the, this, the effects of sin. And God is also healing our society. So you know, when Dr. King and the civil rights movement there, you know, they, they said things like no law can change a human heart, right? God, we need God to heal racist hearts, but people change laws, right? So you also needed laws to change so that people can uh, go to the same schools and swim in the same swimming pools and vote and be able to be recognized as fully human. Because, you know, when our we, we deemed black folks three-fifths human for, you know, I mean, this is all a part of healing that history. And, uh, and we, we can't just see it as individual hearts that are being healed. That's, that's part of the, the piece of this. But we've also got to say, you know, right now, one in every three African-American boys, one in three can expect to go to prison. Wow. That is the residue of slavery and 400 years of racism, right? That is not just like, oh, young black boys are worse than white boys or something like that. Like this is systemic entrenched racism. And I think that's what, you know, a lot of us are reckoning with. I mean, even the Freakonomics study that show, you know, they put out two identical resumes to folks that employers that were hiring. I don't know if you saw this, Josiah, but the only no, thing different was the name. The, the, the resumes were identical. The names were different. One was a white sounding name and the other was uh, an ethnic name or a person of color it might be more associated with. So like you would have Jason and Joquan, 
right? Or Matthew and Mohammed. And over and over, the employers chose the white sounding name. So, I mean, all of that just shows mm -hmm. us that this is bigger than just uh, 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 the, the healing of, of a person's heart, you know? And, and um, so that, those are, you know, the great thing is it doesn't have to be either or, you know, I say that all the time with gun violence is that, you know, no law can change a violent heart. We need mm -hmm. God to soften our hearts, but we also need to change some gun laws so that we can protect more lives. Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate that. I appreciate that you were talking about corporate versus individual guilt, because that's what I want to talk about next is because, I, you know, when I was starting to look at this stuff, I, I said, well, hold on a second. Marxism is what is about saying, you know, the proletariat is, you know, the evil class and the, uh, or how is that? The bourgeoisie is the evil class. The proletariat is is ethically justified in any action that they take, and you know this this whole Marxist thing. And there is a problem with Marxism in the academy. There is there are people that you know would put guilt on all white people because you know a certain in an unjustified way. Like there are problems like that, and I you know I've people have been seeing this for a long time that that there is you can go too far on the left, right? But you can go too far on the right as well. And we need to recognize that there is a sense in which we can be involved in corporate sin. And what is interesting to me is that we recognize this when it comes to abortion. We'll use language such as this is a national sin or, you know, God's wrath is on our nation because of abortion or sometimes the same rhetoric with homosexuality, you know, because of, of, you know, we're falling away from God or, or because of, um, I don't want to continue with that thought too much. It sounds terrible to, to say it, but, you know, with abortion and some of these issues, we say, well, there's a stain on our nation and that's why we don't have God's blessing. But when it comes to racism and when it comes to not including the, uh, the alien among us and not honoring people that don't look like us, with full rights and accepting them into the job market and accepting them into politics and accepting them into, you know, all the ways that, that power is, uh, is, is stewarded in our culture. We, we keep that, we keep other people away and we keep us in the center, but we don't recognize that we have some corporate responsibility in that as part of basically the ruling class. Um, and, and we're very quick to say, well, if you say that I am, I am part of this group that's oppressing people, well, you must be a Marxist. Um, and I, I find that very hypocritical considering how we talk about abortion and, and a lot of other issues. Yeah, I mean, I often quote, you know, the, the gospel of Luke, where it casts a vision for the realigning of the world, right? Mary's wonderful song is she's mm. pregnant with Jesus. She says, uh, the, the mighty are cast from their thrones and the lowly are lifted up. The hungry are filled and the rich are sent away empty. I mean, that, that's not Karl Marx. That's the, you know, the gospel of Luke. That's Mary's song. So, you know, in the scripture, we do see this upside down kingdom where the last are first, the first are last. Um, and the centering of those who are on the margins and this, you know, this, this idea that God's really including the excluded and challenging the chosen. I mean, his harshest words, Jesus's harshest words were those who thought that they ha had all the power and all of the um, moral authority. And, 
and they used it to heap heavy burdens on other people, right? Mm-hmm. Jesus calls them a brood of vipers, you know, he, and, and he even says things like the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom ahead of you. Yeah. Right. I mean, that, that's some radical idea, you know, is, is that these people that have been totally ostracized um, by the religious community, by the power structures of their time are at the center of the kingdom or they're coming in ahead of the religious people. So that's the kind of stuff that gets you in trouble. Right. That ruffles a few feathers. Right. So. So. Yeah. But I think that alignment. But this is where for me, it's so important to stay rooted in Jesus and rooted in love. And I think that you can have all, all kinds of things that end in IST, you know, is socialist, communist, you know, anarchist. But if it doesn't look, if it's not rooted in love, then I think it can just be another system and systems can hurt people, right? They do hurt people. Um, Capitalism, right? This is another system that like, when I look at the early church, and the Holy Spirit fell on them at Pentecost. Like I always loved that when I was in the Pentecostal church, you know, they talked about them speaking in tongues, you know, and all this. But one of the things that happened was that they shared, they shared their possessions. And it says that they, you know, they didn't hold their possessions uh, uh, in their hands. They, they put them at the feet of the apostles. They distributed them, you know, to people who were in need. And it says there were no needy persons among them. So literally this community, as the Holy Spirit fell on the early church, they started sharing stuff and they had this radical ethic of love that Basil the Great said, if I, it, it, we call someone a thief if they steal someone's clothes, but shouldn't we call a Christian a thief if they have more clothes than they need while someone else is naked, right? It was this radical ethic that we have no right to have more than we need when someone else has less than they need how can we say that we love our neighbor as ourselves? You know, if you've got two coats, you've stolen one. And that's why St. Vincent de Paul said, when I go give food to the hungry, I get on my knees and I ask for forgiveness because I'm only returning what was stolen. Right. You see this in the gospel. I mean, John the Baptist says, repent. And he says, and if you've got two coats, two tunics, give one away. Zacchaeus, as he you know, falls in love with Jesus, he sells half of everything he owns and pays people back four times what he owed them as a tax collector. So that that uh, I mean, we can call it reparations. Right. We, that that healing the wounds of inequity is a natural overflow of our rebirth and of our love. But that's why I think, you know, it, we can't just begin with the redistribution um, as a formula, right? Because um, it wasn't that they, uh, that they had community because they shared stuff. It was that they shared stuff because they had community and they had fallen in love with God and connected to their neighbors. So I think that's why uh, love uh, is, is where we have to begin. And the sharing of stuff is not the prescription, it's the description. Does that make sense? That's why I think I, I would push back on some folks um, that just have an economic theory if yeah. they don't talk about love, right? Yeah. Because the scriptures say that we can say, this is what Corinthians says, we can sell everything we have and give it to the poor. But if we don't have love, it's still empty. It also says we can have faith to move mountains and speak in the tongues of men of angels. And if we don't have love, so love becomes so central and it has to be that, that ethic of love that is 
shaping how we think about economics and how we think about these other social issues. What does love require of me? And I would suggest that uh, we need another dream than the American dream. You know, the, mm -hmm. the average person in the U.S. is consuming the same as 500 people in parts of Africa. We now have less than 100 rich people that own the same amount as half of the world's population. That's a really um, dangerous world to live in, right? When, mm -hmm. when you, you have 100 rich folks that have more than they could ever imagine that are living in the same world when masses and masses of uh, folks don't have what they need just to survive. Yeah. And I appreciate that nuance. Sometimes we can have this, this non-nuanced way of looking at it that if you're not going to agree with me, then you're going to go crazy left and you're going to embrace all the bad stuff over there. Clearly there, there's nuance there. You, you can, you can have, um, you can have ideas about wealth distribution. You can have ideas about uh, reforming society without going crazy into, you know, Marxism or whatever. And let's just be honest about the fact that we have crazy ideas on the right as well. And we have idolatry and we have all sorts of things. We it's so hypocritical for, for example, the Southern Baptist Association to be so harsh on the left with critical race theory and inter intersectionality without being equally harsh on themselves and their history of racism. Now, they have published some things about, you know, repenting of that. Um, to yeah, quote, when, you, when you have a, like a bunch of white men saying critical race theory is not a thing or it's sinful or social justice is not connected to the gospel, I think you make the point for us, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe somebody needed to say something about it, but maybe not you. <laughs> um, a, a previous... So, you know, the, just one more thought on this too is yeah. I, I think that that just as we see this dynamic of personal compassion that is a part of the gospel, like we also see the systemic stuff, right? Like for instance, the the jubilee in in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament was God's plan for systemically interrupting inequity, right? Mm -hmm. That that debts are to be set free, slaves are be uh, debts are forgiven, slaves are set free, the land rests, and we redistribute property, you yeah. know, which was, you know, a currency at the time was uh, like owning property was a big deal. So we got to have these, it was every seven years, every seven times seven years that we had these periods of, um, of, of kind of healing that inequity that exists in our world. And some folks say, well, you know, the, the Jewish community never really practiced that. And uh, my friend Chad Myers says, well, sometimes he, he says that Christians have, haven't practiced the Sermon on the Mount, but yeah. that doesn't mean it wasn't God's command, you know? Yeah. So I think we've got to learn from that. So I'm not saying that there aren't um, some things that our society needs to do to uh, to readjust to the history of slavery and to do reparations and also to correct that inequity. I mean, we have a minimum wage where a lot of us are doing the fight for 15, $15 an hour, you know, uh, should there be a maximum wage? You know, those are great questions. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's even like, let's just say like $3,000 an hour. <laughs> Like, is it sinful? Is it illegal to make more money than that? You know, I think those are great questions that we can ask, you know, like um, if someone makes a ton of money, shouldn't they be given back to the common good? I mean, you know, uh, who needs the, the kind of massive buildup of money that we've seen, even in the pandemic, that folks are yeah. just 
capitalizing off of the suffering of other people. So mm -hmm. I, I think they have, you know, it is a responsibility of any government to protect the most vulnerable. And those things that we see in Matthew 25, you know, caring for the sick, caring for those who are imprisoned, caring for those who are hungry and naked. And like, th that's how we're going to be judged. And interestingly enough, it, Jesus is crystal clear in Matthew 25. It says all the nations will be gathered before God and we will be judged on how we cared for the least among us. So mm -hmm. the test of our society is not, you know, our, our test for how healthy we are is not how the Dow Jones is doing or how stocks are doing, but how the poor are doing. Hmm. We've talked a lot about the negatives and uh, we certainly want to back away from that. But my friend Merle Nisley says the problem with backing away from something is you can't see where you're going. And you've also talked about Jesus. How can, how can we, especially as people who have been so raised with, you know, all these stories and ideas about interpreting Christianity and this war on culture and winning our nation back for God and a very narrow view of what it means to be saved and having the right ideas in our head and making sure people, you know, say the prayer. How can we get Jesus centered? You mentioned the red letter association and, and, We'll put a, a link in the bio so people can find that exactly where that is. But um, other than listening to the people on that uh, forum, how can we start to rediscover uh, Jesus-centered Christianity in 2021? Yeah, it's interesting because the, the red letter Christians language, uh, you know, might be new to a lot of folks listening in, but it, it originated um, from a country music DJ down in Tennessee that was interviewing a friend of mine. And he's, you know, this guy didn't seem to have a whole lot to do with the church, but he said, I've read the Bible and there's parts of it that I like, and there's parts of it that I find really confusing and um, even troubling. And he said, but I've always liked the stuff in red talking about, you know, the, the, the gospels that have the words of Jesus in red. He says, you guys seem to really take the red letters seriously. You should call yourselves red letter Christians. And so it was this literally secular Jewish country music DJ <laughs> that gave us that language. But I think for what, what we recognized, um, many of us is exactly what Gandhi pointed out. He said, I love Jesus. I just wish the Christians acted more like him, right? The Christians are so often, they're very unlike their Christ. So we're kind of going back to Jesus and saying, what if Jesus meant the stuff he said, what if our Christianity, um, look more like Jesus again, because you, you read the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies, sell what you have and give it to the poor. And we've kind of brushed over that, right? Ironically, it's the, these versions of evangelicalism that have lost their grounding in Jesus. So Jerry Falwell, when he was asked, Jerry Falwell, you know, at the time was the president of Liberty University, one of the biggest evangelical schools in our country, in the world. And, um, and a, a reporter said, how do you reconcile your loyalty to Jesus with your loyalty to Trump. And I watched it over and over to make sure I didn't misquote him. And he said, I don't look to Jesus. This is Jerry Fowler. I don't look to Jesus when it comes to shaping my political beliefs. Wow. So literally we have seen Jesus as a personal savior mm -hmm. that is, you know, saving my soul to go to heaven. But some Christians see Jesus as totally irrelevant to the world that we live in, to 
and, and that boggles the mind, right? Yeah. So to go come back to Jesus and to say, we, we want, Jesus is the lens through which we interpret the Bible. And too often we interpret Jesus in light of some verse in the Old Testament or that something that Paul wrote. And I believe in the whole Bible. And as, as Bruxy Cavey says, uh, I believe in the inerrant, infallible word of God. His name is Jesus. <laughs> right? And that Jesus is the lens through which I'm understanding the Bible and the lens through which I'm understanding the world because the word became flesh. And so if I want to see and understand God, I look to Jesus. If scriptures seem like they are at odds with each other, Jesus becomes the referee, right? Jesus becomes a sounding board for that. So if our Christianity doesn't look like Jesus and doesn't smell like Jesus and doesn't act like Jesus, then uh, that's where we have a problem because Christian is to be Christ-like. It's to, as Mother Teresa said, to leave off the fragrance of Jesus in the world. So Shane, I know that uh, you live in a community called The Simple Way that you founded, I think, around 15 years ago. Um, in My the brother, it's been it's been more than that. I'll have to say we just so we just remembered twenty five years. So. Wow, okay, time <laughs> flies. Um, can you share a little bit about that? I know we don't have tons of time left, but that I think is a real inspiration. But then, can you also bridge over to you know regular flo- folks like myself uh, that might not find myself in a position as you know, father, of a bunch of young kids, and I got to work a job and I've only got so much free time. Um, and I am tied to certain things. How can people like me also kind of recapture the Sermon on the Mount in, in 2021? Yeah, man. Well, first of all, uh, you know, our community, we really kind of trace our our origins back to an experience when I was in undergrad, I was in college at Eastern university and there was a group of homeless mothers, primarily it was homeless families, children. Uh, There was, there were 3000 families on the waiting list for housing in Philadelphia. And so as winter approached, they had um, gotten together and they saw in, in Philadelphia, we've got all these abandoned houses and abandoned buildings and so they chose uh, uh, this old abandoned Catholic church building and they moved into it. And I don't know how much they thought strategically about this, but it just sparked an incredible movement in our city uh, of solidarity with them. Um, sadly, the Catholic church um, gave them an eviction notice, right? That if they weren't out within 48 hours, they could be arrested for trespassing. And so the families, you know, they hung a banner on the front of the building that said, how can we worship a homeless man on Sunday and ignore one on Monday? Wow. And they held, they held a press conference and they said, we mean no disrespect to the church officials, but we uh, have talked to the real owner of this building, God, (laughs) God said we can stay. So they, they were just incredible. And they, they captured the, the, uh, you know, compassion of our city. And, and for me as a student in the suburbs, I heard about that. And we organized the solidarity movement. And, you know, that struggle lasted not for just two, 48 hours, but for months and months. And many of those families got housing. They became some of our best 
theologians and friends. And so mm. we just celebrated the 25th anniversary of the takeover of that cathedral. Um, and then out of that, my friends from college and I were reading about the early church in the book of Acts, sharing everything in common and, um, and, and really living the gospel out of our homes, you know, and the gospel out of, it's got to, you know, come into our living rooms and our dinner tables and flow into the streets around us. So we saw worship more than just a, a, a service on Sunday, but something we want to integrate into our lives. And so we, you know, we, we started in one house with a bunch of uh, like 20 year olds and we grew into a village, you know, so now we've got a dozen houses or so on the same block. We're still creating affordable housing out of abandoned houses. We've got gardens and, you know, murals that we're painting. So we're trying to, as, as we say, like, imagine what the kingdom of God or the reign of God would look like on Potter street, you know, in North Philadelphia. And we're fighting the things that, destroy people's lives like gun violence and um, a lack of access to healthy food, you know, and all those things that we know are a part of God's dream. We're pursuing them. And, you know, I, I don't think it's my job to um, Josiah to like prescribe how everybody's got to live, but I would just say like the invitation that seems at the heart of the gospel for all of us is to lean in to the suffering of the world. That's what happens in Jesus. God leaves all the comfort of heaven and is born not just into anybody in any physical body, but is born into a brown skin, Palestinian, Jewish, refugee body. That's how God comes to us from a town where people said nothing good can come from there. So that the entire trajectory, I think, of what happens in Jesus is about God leaving the comfort of heaven to join the struggle here on earth from his birth in the manger, because there was no room in the end until his execution on the cross, that Jesus is this incredible act of divine solidarity with, with us as, and particularly with those who are suffering in this world. Um, so we're to lean into that. Now, I think what that does to us is a lot of different things. You know, the, our vocations or our careers might shift a little bit, you know, um, to what the question that we may be asking is not just, am I going to be a lawyer or a doctor, but what kind of lawyer, what kind of doctor yeah. Can I be, you know, and I love how Frederick Beekner, who was, you know, a great writer. And he said, we've got to take our deepest passions and connect them to the world's deepest pain. Hmm. So when our passions meet the world's pain, you know, that's where the magic happens. I think, I think that's where we begin to see that we're all wired a little differently. You know, some of us are scientists, some of us are school teachers, some of us are childcare workers but we're all trying to align our gifts with a bigger vision of God, you know, redeeming and healing and restoring the world. And we get to be a part of that. Yeah. So I think what you're saying is pushing back behind this division that happened in the 1920s between the social gospel and the so-called fundamentalist gospel, or this idea of the five fundamentals of how you get saved. 
we need to reconnect that, that actually being, being a Christ follower actually does mean that we are engaged in what we might call the social gospel, caring for the sick and homeless, not just overseas, but here in our community, caring for people. And when it comes to laws and comes to larger issues, being in, involved in that fight as well and linking arms with people inside and outside the church that are part of these uh, change movements instead of just digging in our heels and saying, we need to take our nation back for God and all we care about is one, two, three issues that are actually going to elect political figures that are going to make our lives more comfortable as well, coincidentally. Yeah, absolutely, man. I, I, and I, I believe there's only one gospel. You know, the, when, we, when we look at Jesus, but that gospel is social and it yeah. is personal. Right. Like there's I don't think there's any way to read the the actual Gospels and not see that there is a God that is personal and that is healing individuals. And there is a God that is transforming the world and the kingdom of God language that Jesus uses is politically charged language. It is about the utter transformation of everything in society that is not aligned with that that. reign of God where the last are first and the first are last. So we're, you know, we're challenging that. So what happens, I think, is sometimes we separate these things as if they were antithetical to each other, rather than, I always say that the social and the personal are like sides of scissors, you know, they've got to like cut together. They're like the blades of scissors. And if we just say this is just personal and not social, we lose that, uh, you know, and, and what happens a lot in church history is that we overemphasize one truth at the expense of another. So I, I sometimes think of it like if you drive your car off the right side of the road, you yank the wheel and drive it off the left side of the road. That's what's happened, I think, in some, some points. And that's why some of the biggest heresies in, in church history have been uh, emphasizing one truth by erasing another. And so I think we've got to hold those in attention together faith and works, the great commission, the great commandment, loving God, loving our neighbor, Jesus holds those together. And so if our gospel is only social and not a personal gospel, I think we're missing a whole piece of it. If it's only personal and about escaping this world and going to heaven and not about transforming the world, I also think we're missing a whole part of the gospel of Jesus. Yeah. And I think historically speaking, there have been oppressors and there have been reformers in the church. But if you looked at the actual time periods, the oppressors were usually mainstream and the reformers were usually the marginalized or the marginal people. And I think it's time for us to courageously take the margins or take the, the road less traveled to, um, to reform society rather than going along with it. Uh, yes, Shane, my you've, brother. Been, you've been really generous with your time. Um, I'm wondering if you can just leave us with uh, ways to connect with you. And I don't know if you have any final word that you want to say, um, but I don't want to keep oh, you. Oh, it's great. Me. Well, thanks for the conversation. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I'm, uh, you know, you folks can follow me on, um, on the social media. I'm on, it's just my name, Shane Claiborne. Uh, I'm on uh, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Um, and you can find out more about the larger movement of red letter Christians at redletterchristians.org. Okay. And I, I think the, the last thing I would close us with is just saying um, that one of the, the, the profound things I see is that Jesus um, 
has survived the embarrassing things that Christians have done in his name. Mm. <laughs> you know, and that's been true for a long time. It's not to dis, you know, to discount or discredit, you know, the damage that has been done. But I, I would invite folks to keep leaning in to Jesus um, and to leaning into those communities that um, have really understand a, a more a healthier version of the gospel than what some of us, you know, I think have experienced. Um, and I'm, I'm hopeful, you know, I, uh, that a generation from now, when people hear the word Christian, that they won't say uh, anti-gay and judgmental and hypocritical and racist and all these, but they would actually say love, you know, mm -hmm. that they would say justice. They would say, uh, those are the people that welcome immigrants and refugees. Those are the folks that believe in peace, even when people are hurting them. And so let's keep coming back to, to Jesus again. And, um, and for folks that, you know, may feel like they've, they need a little space from that. I think like to see that, that rejecting one version of Christianity doesn't mean the end for a lot of folks. I think it's the beginning. Mm -hmm. You know, I tell, I tell a lot of folks that say, I want nothing to do with the Trump evangelicalism of the United States. I say, me neither. And I think that that rejection can be the beginning of a healthier faith um, that, that does, you know, center Jesus. So um, keep leaning in and, you know, keep surrounding. We, I think we got to surround ourselves with people who um, keep our joy alive, keep yeah. our hope alive. You know, we, we tend to become like the people we hang out with. So you want to be more courageous hang out with courageous people if you want to be more hopeful hang out with hopeful people but um, it's an amazing time to be alive and one of my elders of the civil rights movement he said if you wonder what you would have been doing uh when dr king was alive just look at what you're doing right now because that's what mm. you would have been doing then <laughs> <laughs> i'm not sure if i'm encouraged or discouraged by that but it is uh something to think about well shane thank yeah. you very much thank for your time and, yeah, uh, thank you, my brother. Thank you for what you're doing.